I think you could ask anyone in the world today, what is the greatest trouble in the world today? And you'll get a different answer for every person, thousands of different answers. And the answer you will probably not hear is false worship. You're not going to hear that on TV. Idolatry. That's our problem. Or what if we asked every person in the world, what is the deepest problem with every human soul? What do you think the deepest problem is with your soul? Again, a multitude of answers are going to fill the air. Well, bad parenting, that's the big problem. Bad biochemistry, bad politics and leaders, bad education, mental illness, physical illness, poverty, oppression, abuse, and on and on. And usually people will list real problems, real troubles, but we have to ask ourselves, is that the deepest problem? When God speaks to us and shows us the mirror and says, okay, here is the trouble that besets the human condition. What does he show us? How often do we hear the worship of idols is the root of human misery? How many people are going to say defection from God? That's my biggest problem. Dysfunction of devotion. Unfaithfulness to the Lord. Giving glory to creation rather than creator. Exaltation of self above my maker. Well, Exodus 32 leaves no doubt. It provides the account of what the people of Israel are doing at the base of the mountain while Moses is with the Lord on the top of the mountain receiving the law from Yahweh. And so it's strategically placed. When we closed last week at the end of chapter 24, Moses had gone up to the mountain and would be on the top of the mountain for 40 days. And this is an account of what happens while he's up there. It's no accident that it's here. We're meant to see God showing us right in the middle of all this giving of the law for a lawless people. This giving of the terms of the covenant with Yahweh is this account going to be shoved right in the middle to show us this is the problem God has to solve. This is the core of our human trouble that the Lord has to redeem us from. And so we'll walk through the passage in In seven points, seven steps, beginning with point one, the ugly scene. And these should be listed on your sermon notes page in your service guide. The ugly scene. Verse one, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, We don't know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off your rings of gold that you are in your ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. 
The Lord calls Moses up to the mountain to receive the law. A few weeks go by, and once more the real heart of this people is exposed. And so they approach Aaron in verse 1, up. Stop sitting around, Aaron. Stop waiting. Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. Because few things expose the real content of our hearts more than just the simple passage of time. That every profession of faith is tested chronologically. We can say whatever we want to say. Let's see over time. While Moses, the mediator, receives the law of God on the top of the mountain, the people of God were at the base violating it. That's the irony of this moment. They're already violating the first commandments that God's going to be giving them. Don't have any other gods before me. Don't make an image. Well, here they go. And all they have to do is just wait on the Lord. And yet, when the Lord makes us wait and be still and trust him, just all kinds of evil starts forming in our hearts. When our sense of accountability is gone, when the law is gone, when God seems far away, that's when we really know, right? What's in there? What thoughts, what emotions, what actions begin to churn and ooze out of us? They had everything they needed to be faithful, and yet they demanded Aaron make something for them to see and touch. They demand tangible gods, gods they can control. As for this Moses, they're like, he's gone, which means I guess God must be gone. So they cry out, make us gods, which is one of the most ridiculous statements that have ever been uttered in the history of the world. Because as soon as you make it, it ain't a god. It's that simple. And so in verse 4, Aaron, see the words, received, fashioned, made a golden calf. Now they're going to say, these are your gods. Even shows their misunderstanding of who God is. They have some sense that maybe he's a plurality of gods. These are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. These are your redeemers. These are the ones who did all the work for you. And so Aaron's going to build an altar before that idol. He's going to proclaim a feast. The next day they're going to sacrifice. They're going to enjoy the feast. And they're going to rise up to party, which means they're going to eat, they're going to drink, they're going to commit sexual immorality. In other words, they're going to adopt all these various forms of worship and fellowship that Yahweh actually gave them, like sacrifice, like feasting, like, okay, this is to the Lord. But it's all oriented around this idolatrous image with a bunch of immorality thrown in, which is always thrown in when there's false worship. And I think we need to realize this about false worship, that if you're wrong on one key thing, you're wrong on the whole thing. Every false religion in the world has bits of truth in it. Satan knows how to masquerade with a little light. So we have to see this, that every religion in the world, little bits of truth, but it's packaged in a web of lies which is what makes it grand deception. It makes it alluring, but it makes it destructive. Because the Lord is not fooled, which brings us to the next point, the clear cause. Verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. 
Lord said, they're not my people, Moses. They're your people. They've corrupted themselves. That's when you know it as a husband, you come home and your wife says, you need to go deal with your children. Then you know, okay, there's, something's happened. And here's the Lord saying, go deal with your people, Moses. Verse 8, they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. In other words, they didn't give in after this long battle with temptation and trouble. They turned aside quickly. And the way wasn't murky and confusing and ambiguous. It was the way, he says, he explicitly commanded. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. He quotes them word for word. God always hears. He always knows what we think, what we feel, what we say. So that on Judgment Day, there is a transcript. And it's word for word. They made, he says, they worshipped. They sacrificed. Notice what he says, they made it for themselves. They sacrificed to it, not to him, but to an it. Because when we refuse to worship the hymn of the universe, you will worship all the its. And never realize just how ridiculous this looks from heaven. Because we can get so worried about what other people think looks ridiculous and not worry enough about what looks ridiculous to God. Verse 9, And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people. Behold, it is a stiff-necked people. They're not good people doing bad things. This is not just right intentions gone wrong. This is not about some people who just had a few rough decades traumatized by slavery, by pain, real troubles and burdens where they're just trying to figure it out and cope. No, he says this is a stiff-necked people. Their hearts are stubborn. Their desires are self-centered. Their aspirations are worldly. So God basically says, they don't trust me, they don't fear me, they don't love me. They're rebels at heart. Though I deserve their honor, though I deserve their reverence and their obedience, their mission is their kingdom, their glory, their will. That's what they follow. And here we see the root of human misery. An orientation of heart away from God. Alienation from God. Happy ignorance of God. Refusal to worship God in spirit and in truth. The exaltation of the creature above the creator. This is why we might be tempted to think, well, I'm not prone to make idols. I'm not prone to worship falsely because I don't have any statues in my house. I don't have any gold figures of calves. Well, no, that's why we have to realize even what we heard read from 1 Corinthians 10, idolatry takes so many forms. Is it a job? Is it money? Is it physical image? Is it the approval of other people? Is it possessions? Is it power? Is it fill in the blank? Is it the respect of my children? Is it honor from my spouse? Is it just pleasure? What is the created thing you tend to exalt over the creator of that thing. 
And this is committed by a people who saw the works of the Lord in redeeming them from Egypt. They're without excuse. Just as the whole world, every human being on earth, including us, is without excuse. Listen to how Paul explains it in Romans 1. His invisible attributes, that is God, namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's Paul's summary of the history of the world. Our parents may have raised us poorly. We may have suffered terribly for many years. Our culture can apply all kinds of pressures on us. Our bodies can apply all kinds of pain and suffering. Yet the Lord believes he will always give enough to leave us without excuse in worshiping him with all of our being. And so the reason we refuse can be explained by only one thing. And that is the sinful condition of our souls. The great disorder of humanity is not mental illness, but worship illness. And again, we're not going to hear that outside the Bible. It's not firstly something done to us, but something done by us. Not something originating outside us, but something originating inside us. So if we stand before God, somehow thinking that the root reason for our misery is something other than our heart condition, then the only person we're fooling is ourselves. The Lord knows exactly what to call it, a stiff-necked people who corrupt themselves. This is going to be why Moses doesn't plead with God to minimize their sin, but rather to have mercy. This is where it goes next, the plea for mercy, verse 10, where God says, Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation out of you. And you think about the kind of heartache that they put Moses through to this point, I would have to think that sounds tempting. Where God says, you know what, Moses, let me just wipe them out. I'll just start over with you. And all your headaches are over. But Moses implored the Lord as God and said, Oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out? to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger. Relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I've promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So what do the people deserve? They deserve what all sinners deserve, for God's anger to burn hot, so hot that it consumes everyone, and he wipes the slate clean and just starts over. That's justice. That's judgment that is righteous. 
And I think every morning we arise, we should remember that that's what the Lord could justly do to all sinners. Could justly do to those who've rebelled against him in false worship. Because none of us are going to fully appreciate what happens next. What happens in the rest of the Bible. What happens through Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. If we don't first realize what our sin deserves. Verse 11, but Moses implored the Lord his God for mercy. But notice the basis for this mercy. He's appealing firstly, number one, to the reputation of God. Why should all the Egyptians speak wrongly of you, Lord, and thinking you just brought this people out to kill them? Your reputation, Lord, is at stake. Number two, to the faithfulness of God. Remember God, what you promised to do. Remember what you said to Abraham, to Isaac, to Israel. You'd bring this people out. You'd multiply them. You'd give them this land. What he doesn't appeal to is, hey, Lord, they're not that bad. You know what, Lord? They're actually, there's a little good in them. They're, re- they're redeemable in and of themselves. He's not appealing to any of that. He's going to appeal to the reputation, the name of God, to the faithfulness of God. And in response to that, God's going to relent. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of of bringing on his people. In other words, he didn't wipe out all the people and start over with Moses. There is going to be some judgment coming. There is going to be some death for some of the people. But the Lord will withhold the wrath that everyone deserves. And this isn't God being wishy-washy. This is the Lord showing the fullness of his character, more of his character at one time. He's showing the holiness of his anger and the righteousness of his judgment. But now he's showing that the, the beauty and the purity of his mercy and his grace. That he's a God who hears petition from an intercessor. He's a God who relents from disaster and shows grace. And sometimes it can be so hard to hold all these things at one time. Yeah, this is what we're seeing in Scripture is a fuller view of who God is. It's not God flopping back and forth, but God showing, no, I am, I am this God of holy justice and wrath. And I'm a God of mercy and grace. So Moses is going to turn and go down the hill, and he's going to see what's happening, which is going to lead us to the fourth point, the expression of outrage. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. What a privilege have the work of God, the writing of God, that he actually did it, that you're carrying down the mountain to these people. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. So Moses arrives to see the scene. He knew a little about what was happening before he got there, but I think when he sees it, it still catches him off guard. And he just launches these tablets 
down the mountain, shatters them at the base, which I think is a symbolic picture of what they're doing. They're breaking God's law right here. It's interesting, the Bible gives us no commentary of what God thought about this whole throwing the tablets thing. It's one of those moments where this, the scripture is beautifully silent. We just don't know what God thought. We know what Moses thinks. He's angry. It burns hot. He's going to grind up that calf to powder, mix it with water, make them all drink it. Because when the true prophet of God sees the people of God worshiping a false god, he expresses himself with the righteous anger of God. I think we're meant to see that's what this is. He is jealous for his God. He is grieved for his people. He cannot help himself. And sometimes I think we're meant to be bothered by how not angry we get sometimes when we see the similar scene. But more than anything, hopefully it reminds us of a greater Moses that's going to come someday. Listen to John chapter 2. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. In making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Here we see Jesus, the greater Moses, burning hot with the same zeal for God's name, for God's people. Because the true prophet or priest or mediator of a covenant, in one way, kind of lives suspended between heaven and earth. He represents God to a people. He represents people to God. And this is why you want Jesus to be your prophet, priest, and king. You want him to be the one representing God to you and you to God. You don't want to be that. You don't want to play that role. You don't want to be the mediator. He's the one that reconciles you and your God. And so Moses, I think, just feels that weight of an intercessor, a mediator. And he's asking the question, how could this happen? How could Aaron and the people turn to this wickedness in just a few weeks? leads us to point five, the absurd excuse. Moses confronts Aaron with his clear, specific, direct question. Verse 21, and Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? In other words, what gun did they hold to your head? Which of your children did they threaten to kill? that you would bring this great sin upon them. Aaron, you did this. Aaron, this was sin. Aaron, this sin is great. What do you have to say? Verse 22, and Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot, which you just want to say, why not? You know the people, that they are set on evil. That's where he's going to start. Start with, Blaming the people. Adam, what did you do? Well, the woman that you gave me. Ate the fruit, gave it to me, so I ate. I mean, don't look at me. It's her, you made her, so it's y'all's thing. 
So from Genesis 3, ever since sin inward, through Exodus 32, all the way, this is our instinct. What did you do? What did they do to you that you would bring this great sin? Well, you know the people. You know what they're like, how they're set on evil. Verse 23, for they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. Which is interesting, a very true statement, but used in a way that is a deflection. So we can justify sin saying true things and miss the point. So he's going to go on to blame the situation. Hey, the, the people were upset, Moses. You were away. We don't know what happened to you. So even maybe, Moses, it's a little upon you. You took too long. You know what you're doing. They were all upset. I still think I ought to get out of this. In verse 24, So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. He's going to close by blaming the fire. And some mystic craftsmanship and freak of mechanical engineering that just defies the laws of nature. He's like, I don't know. I just threw in all this gold and out came this calf. We're meant to hear the absurdity of it. And we're meant to realize that this is how we often think and talk about our sin. So remember it vividly. I was six, seven years old. Uh, my parents were in the Navigators, and so we always had guys living with us in our house somewhere. This particular year, we had two men living in our basement, and one of these guys loved mini Snickers bars, and so he had a, always had a big bag of mini Snickers bars in his refrigerator down in the basement. So they were gone one day. I snuck down there, went into that fridge, grabbed out a big handful of these mini Snickers bars, and I took them upstairs, and I'm like, okay, now what? What do I do with all these? Can't eat them all. So I thought... So I found a bush beside our house, and I put all the snicker bars in the bush, like flowers, all inside where you can't quite see them, but they're in there, and then went away. And the next day, I grabbed one. I was eating it. I don't know what it is about moms. They just have this instinctive sense of when something's being eaten that shouldn't be. And so she just felt something. She comes around the corner, and I'm chewing this and putting away the wrapper, and she's like, hey, what do you got? Pull down and say, well... Um, sticker bar, mini sticker bar. And it's like, oh, where'd you get that? And I didn't have a whole lot of time to think it through. But I said, oh, from the snicker bush. <laughs> Which went, really? By this time, my dad comes around the corner, who unfortunately worked at home a lot. And, and so he's like, oh, what happened? And she's like, yeah, he, he found these snickers in the snicker bush beside the house. Oh, I'd like to see that. So at this point, I'm like, oh, okay, this is going to work. So I take him, take him out, take him outside, and we go to the snicker bush. And I'm like, look, there it is. And see, they're just in there growing. And I was walking beside it and looked in, saw it one day, and I thought, oh my goodness, it's like the burning bush. It's even a theological explanation. Well, they didn't buy it. And at some point in the conversation, I began to realize, okay, they're not buying this. And what came was, yeah, judgment came after. Having to deal with the outpouring. But I've come to realize, okay, we all have our snicker bushes. We all have our 
ridiculous rationalizations and excuses that to us make great sense. But to anyone with wisdom listening, to the God who listens, it's absurd. It's ridiculous. But we are masters at muddying the water. Masters at trying to cover the tracks. Trying to make it as foggy and ambiguous as we can. Thinking that nobody will be able to see it clearly. You say, I don't know. I was just doing my thing, and then this other thing happened, followed by something else. And then there I was with this idol and this altar and some drinking and some sex and some false worship. It's just all kind of fuzzy. And that's why we need to slow down. We need to ask God to, to give us real wisdom, real humility. To not just give him honor, but to actually face with honesty what we did. Remember when Achan sinned by taking items under the ban of Jericho and he buried them in his tent. And God's going to judge the people by when they go to fight at Ai, 30 of their soldiers are going to fall dead and they're going to lose. And they're going to weep and they're going to mourn. They're going to go to God like, what happened? You promised us. And God's going to say, hey, is there not sin in your camp? So they go through a series of casting lots and the lots come all the way down to Achan. What's interesting is they know then at that point it's him. They know he's the one that did it. They knew he stole, stole things that were they're under the ban. And yet Joshua is going to say this to them. He says, my son, give glory to God and confess what you did. There's something God glorifying in being honest with him about what he knows we did. Being honest with others about what they already know we did. Because then we would realize, you know what, actually I love the approval of people. And I like gods that I can touch and control. And I love pleasure and sensuality and earthly glory. And so I made this fire and I got it really, really hot. And I collected all this gold from all the people and I sorted it into all these piles based on sizes. And I pounded some of it to make it ready for the furnace. And I put it in this furnace and I carefully applied oxygen and heat in the right proportions to get it to the temperature I needed to melt the gold. And then I got this perfect composition of metal and I would pull it out and I would hammer it and shape it and mold it hour after hour after hour until I got this perfect, beautiful, shiny looking calf. And all the people loved it and then would bow down to it and worship it. And then it got them off my back and they were all happy with me. And we didn't really need you to be here or God to be here anymore. But then we realized, okay, but that really wasn't enough either. Because then we had all these desires for food and for drink and for sexual pleasure and even more glory from people. And so I made this altar really carefully and I cooked this brisket for 16 hours and then I threw this big party. And now everybody loves me. Everybody thinks I'm great. So we sin and worship falsely. That's one problem. But then we cover it and minimize it and justify it and repackage it into all these creative ways to not deal with it. And that's probably the deadliest part. And so ask yourself, what are your favorite excuses? What are the things in your life, even now, in your heart, the false worship that is there, is growing, and that you just repackage it? That in your conversations with God, and your conversations with others, you're not really honest. You're not really facing it. What are your preferred ways of justifying your sin? 
Because we, we want to see it now so that we can be humble now, repent now, turn to the grace of God now because he won't be fooled. None of it works with him. Which leads to point six, the judgment deserved. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose, to the derision of their enemies, meaning enemies are going to hear about this, see this, they're laughing. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you. Go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. So the Levites are going to go through the camp, strike down 3,000 people, their brothers of Israel, maybe even immediate family members. We get the sense here there may be some guys that had to lose sons over this. And so for that reason, the Lord uses this as a kind of ordination ceremony for the Levites. Just as Phineas, if you remember the story in Numbers 25, is going to be ordained and receive the priesthood from God for going in and striking out down a man of Israel who had taken a Midianite woman immorally and wrongly during a solemn assembly before the Lord. Phineas goes, strikes them down, and it checks the plague. And God says, he was jealous with my jealousy. The priesthood is his. So the Lord receives the work of the Levites as a testimony to their reverence for him, to their devotion to his name. Now, we don't do that anymore the same way. You know, when James and John are going to say to Jesus after they're rejected from a city, they're going to say, is this when we call down fire from heaven to incinerate everybody? Jesus is going to say, well, you don't know what spirit you're of. They could have easily said, well, we thought this was Phineas's thing. And he's like, new priesthood. I'm the new priest. And in this priesthood... Their blood isn't going to do it. My blood's going to do it. We're under a new covenant. And I hope we do again realize, though, this is the judgment we all deserve apart from Christ. The wages of sin is death. And so every sin we ever commit in thought or in deed in the courtroom of God deserves execution. And so praise the Lord, he doesn't leave them there. Praise the Lord, he doesn't wipe them all out. Praise the Lord, this isn't the final point. This leads us to point seven, the gracious atonement. Verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. See how often it said that? Great sin, great sin, great sin. They have made, them, them, made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. 
Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they had made the calf the one that Aaron made. So Moses is going to draw near to the Lord and confess the great sin of the people. He's going to try to intercede, to seek forgiveness from the Lord for them. He's even going to offer his own life as a kind of ransom if God won't forgive them. Either forgive them or kill me. What's interesting is the Lord refuses. Because it will never be enough. Each person will stand for their own sin. And when the Lord says, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book, it doesn't mean they were saved and now they're not. Or the Lord's using the language of Moses and this sort of figure of speech to say that all sin will be accounted for. All sin will be paid for. All sin will have to be answered for with blood. No sinner is going to get off the hook. The day of reckoning will come. To the immediate fulfillment of the plague, but then the ultimate fulfillment is yet to come in the final judgment. All sin must be accounted. The Lord cannot leave the guilty unpunished. So here Moses, he tries to make atonement for the people and he's refused. So how can the Lord let any of them live? How can he let any of us live? So the passage just sort of leads to this question, who can ascend the hill of the Lord to make atonement for our sin if Moses can't? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord and reconcile us to God in light of all of our idolatry? Who can pay for it? Who can make it right? Who can bring us back to him? And the answer that God is going to give is that he must provide it for himself. And he's going to do this through Jesus Christ. The rest of the Bible is going to answer that question. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord to make atonement for the sins of his people? Who can go up to God and actually do something that brings forgiveness? Whose blood can pay for it? And so Exodus 32 is going to close with no hope at all, except in his coming. This angel that's going to go before them and bring them into the land, which even there is just a figure and a picture. This is the Son of God who someday is going to come in the flesh, and he's the one that's going to have to go before the people to lead them into the promised land, not Moses. Romans 10 actually talks about this. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Romans 10, verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Well, they got 10 minutes down the road and they've broken it. And they're poised to die for it. And Moses is going to go up to try to intercede and God's going to say, you ain't enough. There's nothing you can offer me. Sin will be paid for. All sin will have to give an account. Verse 6 of Romans 10, But the righteousness based on faith says, Don't say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, bring Christ down, who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. With the mouth one confesses and is saved. So 
Even now in Exodus 32, God's saying to Moses, Moses, there's nothing you can do to save this people. But I tell you what, I'm going to send somebody. One who's greater than you. My very own son, who's going to die in the place of my people for their sin. Though I refuse your sacrifice on this mountain, I will accept his sacrifice at the cross. And on the third day, I will send my spirit to raise him, which Moses, I wouldn't do for you. Let alone spare anyone else through you, because you're not righteous enough. And your righteousness can't be imputed to anybody, even if you had any that could be. You can deliver them the law. I'm going to deliver them grace. You broke tablets? Well, I'm going to break my son. You made them drink of your wrath? Well, I'm going to make my son drink of my wrath. And it will be satisfied. And through him, I will save my people. And all their sin will either fall upon those who refuse him, or it will fall upon him. And on that day, when he's lifted up on the cross, I will visit my wrath on him. So you don't have to say anymore who's going to send up that mountain and save themselves. Who's going to go into the earth and pay for it and be raised? No, you just have to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You have to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. The word is near you. In other words, now is not the time to be stiff-necked. We were stiff-necked already in the worship of idols. We were stiff-necked already in worshiping the creation rather than the creator. What God is saying is, you know what? I'll pass over that. I'll take your sin and put it all on my son so that his blood will make an atonement for you, so that his body will be broken in your place, so that my wrath can be satisfied when I visit it on him. And on the third day, he'll be raised as the evidence that he was righteous, that he was justified. If you will just confess your sin, repent, and look to him. If you'll just trust in him, if you'll just believe him, you will be saved. And so if they refused to worship the Lord on that mountain and thousands perished. That's why Hebrews says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? There's no other way to be spared. That someday this same Jesus who died for sin, who was raised and ascended to heaven, will show up with a sword. And like the Levites, he too will walk through the camp and put to death all who refuse to bow their knee to him, all who refuse to trust his sacrifice in their place. All sin will be paid for. The only question is, who's going to pay for it? Who do you want to pay for your sin? You or Jesus? Today is the day of salvation. And if you want it to be him, he says, all you have to do is confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. But not just saved in the sense of you get out of hell, but saved to new and perfect worship. Jesus is going to say to the woman at the well, my father seeks those who are going to worship him in spirit and in truth. That Jesus didn't just die and raise just to pay for sin, but to actually impute his righteousness to us. Which means now, as those who are redeemed, we are to worship him in spirit and truth. We're not to go back to idols. We're not to go back to the old way. But rather, with the spirit of God put in us, we're now actually able to come to the Lord and offer him sacrifices of praise. Think about that. That our worship is now pleasing to him in Christ. 
that our sacrifices are now pleasing to him in Christ. And so if we find salvation in him, then how much more should we turn from vain idols in order to love him, to serve him, to worship him, the one and only God through Jesus Christ, our Lord.